0: let turn with you now to the Old Testament, to the second book of the Bible, which is Exodus, and Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle, in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep. A very severe pestilence. The Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day. And all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace, and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning, and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet, you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, sin now and gather your livestock, and all that you have in the field for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the fields throughout all the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout all the, the, the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail." And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thunderings and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured out on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more. And he hardened his heart he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this, your word, and indeed it is a very powerful word, a word indeed that is mighty and glorious, mysterious, although clear. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would open the lights of heaven through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might see this light, that we might know the truth of God, that we might see your sovereignty, that we might see you high and lifted up as you truly are, and all men brought low and humbled to the dust as they truly are, that we might see things as they are in reality, and not as they are in fiction. Or in the hearts of man. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we come to Exodus chapter 9. And by this point, the pace of the narration of the plagues has increased uh, simply because we have seen a number of these aspects already. And so, in keeping with that, I shall take this chapter as a whole, indeed, because there is a particular point that needs to be made. Now, the plagues covered in this chapter, chapter 9, are the 5th, 6th, and 7th. The 5th has livestock diseased, the 6th boils, and the 7th hail. But the main theological point to be made is surely the sovereignty of God. This is no new thing. I mentioned this as the great theme of Exodus from the beginning, that God is sovereign. This is the great theme of Exodus. It has been sustained since then in these chapters. And then we have this statement in verse 16. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And in God's purposes, this would be the centerpiece then of Paul's great statement of the sovereignty of God in Romans chapter 9. God is fully sovereign over the affairs of man. And there's another key statement to be found in verse 27. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. I don't know if you notice what you have there. You have a, the great statement, none greater, of the sovereignty of God. And you also have a confession even by this man, this wicked man, who typifies Satan himself by his own confession, saying that he and his people are wicked, and they have sinned. Well, you know, my brother and friend who preached for us this morning, John Payne, introduced me to Charles Simeon. And this is a wonderful quote, perhaps one of the most quoted of his statements, that the purpose of preaching is to humble the sinner, exalt the Savior, and promote holiness. Well, truly, that is the purpose of preaching, and that is the purpose of the Word of God. It is to, uh, to humble the sinner, while exalting the Savior. Because, you know, naturally, what is our heart? What, what, what does sinful man do with God? He brings him low. And all that you ever hear is to make God more like us. Man wants to make God in his own image. That is what all idolatry is about. That is what all false religions, and every heresy, and every error, and, and every false form of Christianity. It is all about bringing God lower and bringing man higher. The preaching is to set the record straight. We all have these things rising in our hearts. Those who come who are not believers, you have this in your heart. You think that God isn't quite as high as he is. He doesn't quite have as many prerogatives as he does. He's not as glorious as he says he is. And and when you hear it declared, you react against it. And as for mankind, as for people, you think that you're a little better. We're all a little bit better than what the word of God says. Even in God's people, these things continually rise as the old man tries to assert himself continually. And the purpose of preaching is to come with a pruning hook, to come with the, the work of God to set the record straight. So this is what I propose to do this evening, to humble the sinner and exalt the Savior. And the title is The Sovereignty of God. That is our title tonight, The Sovereignty of God. And I have five points Five points. The Lord discriminates among peoples. The Lord determines times. The Lord disposes to His glory. Then, well, I should say by the way, three of these are about uh, about the Lord, and two of them are about Pharaoh. Okay So the first three again, the Lord discriminates against among peoples. The Lord determines times, the Lord disposes. So discriminates, determines, disposes. And then two about Pharaoh. Fourthly, Pharaoh confesses his wickedness. And fifth, Pharaoh confirms his wickedness. So three about the Lord and two about Pharaoh. The first, then, the Lord discriminates among people. And verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord God of hosts, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse and let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the oxen, and the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. And that is exactly what happens. In verse 6, the Lord did this thing on the next day. And all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. And in this case, it was not enough for Pharaoh to know these things in some other way. He actually sends a delegation in verse 7. Pharaoh sent and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. How about that? But the heart of Pharaoh became hard and he did not let the people go. Well, this is, of course, the second time this aspect has been pointed out to us in the course of the plagues, and this discrimination, this differentiation between the people of God and the people of Egypt has very, two very important purposes. A, to show that this is no mere accident, right? Because Pharaoh can continually have this, this respite or this this refuge as a lie, of course, but maybe this thing has just happened. It's this bad luck that this horrible plague has come, And you know, it's just happened to all of us. But you can't think that if indeed God makes such a differentiation among the land of Goshen. Here it is. Here's the land of Egypt, and all that around them has suffered this plague in its entirety, and there's an exception there among the people. And even indeed, to add to it, that not one of the livestock of all the people of God in Goshen had died. Now, even if this was, think about how many people there were. It's over a million people there. And all the livestock, who knows how many livestock that there were. Even just by the mere natural occurrences, you expect to find hundreds of them dead in the course of a single day. But God made sure that didn't happen so that when that delegation came, they would not find a single one of them dead in order to confirm the reality of this great and notable miracle. This was no happenstance. This was God at work supernaturally. So, A, the purpose was to show it was no accident. It was proof positive that this was, in fact, a a miracle. But, B, this is no mere raw display of God's power that he just shows, let me show you my power. It, It is that, but it is more than that. It is also his selective judgment against the Egyptians. Does it mean, of course, that every last one of them were personally guilty of Specific crimes and that every one of the Israelites were entirely innocent of every sin? No. That's not what the emphasis is. Now the point is, we know theologically, we know from every declaration in Scripture and our own experience that every last one of this fallen human race is certainly guilty of sin. They're all guilty. But what is being emphasized is rather the, the federal headship, he says, your people. This is going to happen to your people, those who follow you, those who submit to your leadership, those who are identified as Pharaoh's people. And again, a figure, as we say, Pharaoh represents Satan. He typifies Satan in all of this great drama of Exodus. And it is a corporate identity of, of the people that are under the headship of Satan, and this judgment is coming upon them. And friends, judgment is coming on those who follow Satan in this world. Judgment is coming upon the devil, and all of those who submit to his leadership, all of those who follow his lies in this world, judgment is coming. Now let me say that as he makes this discrimination Between those of his people and those of his enemy, his declared enemy who shakes his fist at him and rebels against him, it is certainly a matter that demonstrates the reality of this miracle. It it shows also his justice in so dealing with him. And let me say, larger than that, it is his prerogative to discriminate among peoples, to choose some and not others. He chose Abraham and his children, not Lot. And his. And not the Egyptians, or anyone else for that matter. It, it was not because Abraham was so wonderful. You remember, of course, God makes a point of saying it was not because these people were any larger or better or anything more more lovable than anyone else on the face of the earth, but merely that God set his love upon them. God gets to do that. God gets to, to put his hand upon a people. And to choose him for blessing, he gets to do that because he's sovereign, because he's God. It's his prerogative, as sovereign God, to discriminate among the peoples. And to say that Abraham and his children, I will bless and save rather than others. Secondly, the Lord determines times. So the Lord discriminates among peoples, and secondly, the Lord determines times. In verse 5, then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So, a very brief point, simple point that I want to make. But the Lord is the one who has determined this time, and he makes that point every time or throughout this, this chapter. He is demonstrating the power of God in saying that uh, at this specific time. Again, so that it's no mistake. You see that God is, is doing this thing. We sometimes will have in our plans that we want to do something, that the problem is we can't determine the time. I, I'm, John asked me, for instance, when is this book, this thoroughgoing critique of the transformational theology going to appear? I cannot give him a time because I lack the power. I lack the resources. I'm, just, I'm too weak and limited to say that this is going to be done next month. But God does not lack these resources. He can do great things in as little or as much time as he sovereignly determines to do so. He's not limited by time in the slightest. He is the Lord of time. And, of course, we know the whole of Exodus, I would say, is predicated on the set timing of the Lord. That's the whole setting. That's the context of of Exodus. This is happening at the precise moment that God had determined. You remember the declaration given to Abraham in Genesis 15. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Not 399, not 401, but exactly 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And after that, they will come out with great possessions. And all that is being fulfilled at that moment in the sight of Moses. And even within that larger time frame of not, not the year before, not the year after, but that year. And we believe, by the way, that all these plagues happen in the course of a single year, probably about nine months or so, these from the beginning to the end that these things happened. But even within that, there is a specific day appointed for this particular judgment to come, and so it did. Well, we know as these things, it's highlighted also in Acts chapter 7, when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. And all things reminding us of the sovereignty of God, not just in general terms, but in very specific terms, because all of time is in God's hands alone. God determines, the Lord determines times. So the Lord discriminates among peoples. The Lord determines times. And thirdly, the Lord disposes to his glory. As we see that the sixth plague again highlights the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. In verse 10, then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. You see, you you know in passing what this is signifying. The furnace is always a picture of God's justice and judgment. The furnace that will eventually come upon this whole earth when the Lord returns and judges and he takes, as it were, a piece of that, a piece of that judgment that is to come and, and demonstrates it. They took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in swords on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. It was feature here is the fact of the magicians who were really his plausibility structure i mentioned that before plausibility structure is that thing which man uh constructs in order to make his own rebellion against god seem logical seem reasonable and, and having these magicians there that at least at the beginning could recreate or duplicate the miracles meant that that Moses or that Pharaoh didn't have to listen to Moses. He didn't have to receive these things as being of the Lord because they are being duplicated, at least initially, by the magicians. Well, the magicians go kind of from here to here to here. They're not able really to fully duplicate anything in its fullest extent, but they can do some of it. Recently, they haven't been able to to, to duplicate it, and now they can't even stand physically because they themselves are so completely subject to this plague of the boils on their own body, and they are humiliated before the living God whom they are, are defying. But Pharaoh remains hardened nonetheless. Even as his plausibility structure through these magicians and their lying miracles crumbles to the ground, his heart is yet hardened. But that's not all. In verse 13, the Lord says to Moses, explanation of how it is that the, that Pharaoh hardens his heart and the Lord further hardens his heart. It says in verse 13, the Lord says to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of, Hebrew, of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. None like him. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet you exalt yourself against my people. In that you will not let them go. You see this progression of of a wicked Pharaoh who hardens his heart against the Lord. And judicially then the Lord further hardens his heart. Giving him over to the the hardness that he already has. No longer restraining it. And let me remind you again that whenever we encounter uh, uh, less than the fullest extent of sin. We know that God's restraining hand is on that person. And God releases some of that restraining hand and and Pharaoh is further given over to the hatred of God which he has in his heart and always has had there. And his heart is in effect and further hardened to the the sovereign disposition of God. But that is not all, as I say, God says, God declares the truth of the matter that he has... He has raised to a position of power and authority this particular Pharaoh precisely in order that his sovereignty and power might be shown in him. That had he withered in the very first of these, we would not see the fullness of God's power. God indeed chose this man, this Pharaoh, that the fullness, the full extent of God's power over every sphere of of humanity over every aspect of nature might be declared in its completeness. And we recoil against it. Do we not? Is there not something in our heart when these things are declared, when the Lord God points his finger at Pharaoh and says, You're not going to listen. I know you're not. I've determined you're not. And I've raised you up for this very purpose that my glory might be declared. There rises within us. Some rebellion. Because we don't think God is really here. We think He's about here. He's maybe senior to us. We're the lieutenants and He's the colonel, but we don't really think that He's the five star general. That He can do anything at all that He wants, including being sovereign over the destiny of mankind. You know, Romans chapter 9 says this What shall we say then? And let us never forget this as we're discussing the subject of the sovereignty of God. God anticipates in his goodness, in his mercy, in the reality that he knows, our weakness. He anticipates our objection. He says this. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Because that's our temptation to think that there is unrighteousness with God. When he disposes someone like Pharaoh as he does. Moses and Pharaoh are both manslayers. Okay? They both killed unrighteously. And God raises Moses to be the great pitcher of Christ and lead his people out. And Pharaoh, he brings to destruction. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Verse 15, for he says... To Moses, who is the very recipient of his mercy, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will ha- have compassion. You see, he doesn't say there that I will have justice on whomever I will have justice, because that is not the case, that all mankind stands condemned before a holy God. We are all alike sinners, Pharaoh and Moses on their own behalf, as they were, are sinners, stand condemned before a living God. But rather the question is, on whom is he going to show mercy? And that is up to God and God alone. All of mankind heading headlong into destruction and hell forever. But God shows wonderfully, he shows mercy. Wonderfully, we're not all condemned. Wonderfully, there is a scene in Revelation chapter 7 in which there is a number that no one can count. Of every tribe and tongue under heaven that have been redeemed by God in his mercy. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And here's the explanation. In that context, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. On some, he shows mercy and sovereignly brings him out of their situation of rebellion and hardness and brings him into salvation. and others, he leaves and consigns to the natural rebellion and hardness of their wicked, sinful hearts. You will say then to me, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Do not, my friends, do not imagine that God is choosing capriciously or unjustly. Rather, what we see is a, yes, truly the reality of his justice on those who richly deserve his justice. But also the riches of his grace and mercy on those who do not deserve his mercy at all. We see the sovereignty and the justice and the mercy of God in these things. As he does what he pleases with the same lump of clay, and this whole lump, is, this whole lump is sinful and wicked and deserving of destruction, but as some he shows mercy. God be praised. Now as I say, we must not imagine that God so chooses capriciously or unjustly. I was tempted to, to stop here, but I want you to see that, that Pharaoh is not some innocent victim of God capriciously picking him out of a crowd and and determining to to show justice or to to show his, his judgment and justice upon him, but rather that he is wicked by his own confession and confirmation in his actions. So our fourth point is that Pharaoh confesses his wickedness. He confesses his wickedness. Verse 27, Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to him, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. And my people and I are wicked. Now, friends, this is a true confession. Truer words have never been spoken in all of human history than that he has sinned and that he and his people are wicked. Isn't it amazing that in this duress, in this time of great judgment, he is brought to know himself. And my friends, if the Lord ever brings you in time of great and dire trial in which you come to a moment in which you know yourself as you truly are, know yourself to be a sinner, don't let that moment pass. Get on your knees and confess that you are a sinner. Get on your knees and say, I and my people, we are wicked. And come to Christ in faith. Isn't it wonderful again? The day of salvation continues. We hear again in the summer the sounds, the late summer, and judgment has not yet come on this earth. The day of salvation, the day of, just, of, of mercy remains, and we can call on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Well, again, we should remember these words when we consider the sovereignty of God. It's not that God has plucked at random a man, an innocent man, minding his own business that he simply intends to destroy for no reason is that Pharaoh, by his own confession, is in fact wicked and entirely deserves the judgment of God that he has brought upon himself and more of it. It's useful to keep in mind that to whatever extent people do not express the fullness of their hatred and their rebellion against God, It's not because they're good, but because a good God is restraining their sin. That's what we sometimes call a a common grace or restraining grace that God has on us. And so, in a moment of these things, Pharaoh confesses that he is a sinner. Now, that true confession is followed by a lie or at least another empty promise Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. As we see, even as on the one hand he confesses his wickedness, a lie comes from his lips, a promise he does not intend to keep. And my friends, we see sinful mankind in this man, Pharaoh. All men are liars. The Lord declares, and it is true. Well, as I say, Pharaoh confesses his wickedness, and fifthly, he also confirms his wickedness. He doesn't just say it's true. We see it once again. In verse 29, Pharaoh said, and Moses said to him, As soon as I've gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord, because he is the intercessor, he is the mediator. He points out, indeed, this great function of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one mediator between man and God, and he stretches out his hands. And he intercedes for us, and his blood is shed blood on the cross. And even now, his blood intercedes for us. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, because the Lord Jesus has taken that upon himself, hasn't he? All the thunder and hail of the righteous wrath of God fell on him, and as he spreads out his hands, he intercedes for us, that none fall on us. There will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Because God knows, and Moses knows, that his ongoing sin and rebellion will continue. He only said what he did to get a respite from the plague. And that turns out, of course, to be a true prophecy. That is precisely what happens in verse 33. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased. And the rain was not poured out on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more. And he hardened his heart, he and his servants. And this continual downward spiral of of hardening under every kind of right sign that was ignored. And every time of moment of, of mercy and of extension of the day of grace that was ignored. And there's further hardening and hardening. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. And this is how he repays God for his mercy. God who had said precisely, look, if Pharaoh, you're seeing what I'm doing to your cattle. I could have just as easily have done it to you and your people, and you would already be dead. You would not be here to speak your words to me, to speak to my servant Moses. But I, in my mercy, have let you live another day. And this is how he repays the living God. My friends, if he has shown you a taste of his judgment, if he has given you a trial to think about these things, again, I plead with you, do not repay him in such a way. If he has extended your life, if he has given you a chance to repent, you ought to repent. Well, we see that Pharaoh is wicked by confession and by his confirmation in his deeds. And there is nothing unjust about God's dealings with Pharaoh. They are perfectly just. If anything, we, we could say that he's been patient. The very first time that he opened his mouth against the living God and his servant, God would have been just in wiping him off the face of the earth, and that would have been the end of it. God is incredibly patient, even in his dealings with Pharaoh, the one that he was particularly raising up to show his justice and his power. Now, there's nothing unjust in God's exercising sovereignty over the destiny of mankind. God is being God in all of his justice and righteousness and goodness and truth and mercy and grace. Now, I have two applications. One, that we should joyfully confess the sovereignty of God. Not, and I say joyfully, because some fight against it tooth and nail their whole lives. Some of us can even bear testimony to that. As if it's some horrible truth that we'd never wish to confess. My friends, it is a glorious truth that we love. It's the best truth there is. Some come to it as if it's a grudging admission. Why? Why? Who else should reign over man? Should I? Do you want me to reign over? Do you want you to reign over? Really? Is that what you want? Why not God, who's perfect, sinless, who is utterly pure and holy and good and true and faithful altogether? Why not God? Beloved, this is a great and wonderful thing, that God reigns and we do not. And that means, as I say, that our times are in his hands. And here are the particular things, so many things that could be said on this, but I want rather to give an example that has recently happened of a mutual friend of, of John and I, a man called Joe Steele, a classmate of mine at the basic school, 1997, there at Delta Company, the basic school in Quantico. And on Wednesday, he had to eject from his, his aircraft uh, a second from destruction. And this is what he says. I want to read this in full because it's his testimony to something that is very relevant to this sermon. In 19 years of flying, I've never had an aircraft fail to respond to the movements of the stick, but that is what happened Wednesday afternoon. For reasons not entirely known, my aircraft plunged through the ground when it should have been climbing away from the ground. All of this happened at low altitude and high speed. I've heard it said that Time seems to slow down in near-death experiences, and this was certainly true in my case. I wish I could say that your pastor's mind was full of prayers to God and words of Scripture as the ground rushed closer, but truth be told, I thought only of my wife and five children. It was a sickening feeling to realize that I would not see them again. I also remember being thankful that I would not feel the impact since we were descending so rapidly and so steeply. I'm usually an optimist, but I had resigned myself to unavoidable death on Wednesday afternoon. I told Elizabeth through tears on Wednesday night that I could not explain why I reached for the ejection handle when I did. Sometimes I think I'm the most indecisive person on the planet. My whole life I've been plagued with a paralysis of analysis. My perfectionist tendencies make me agonize over which cup of coffee to buy or which brand of toothpaste to use, let alone whether or not to, to give back a $26 million jet to the taxpayers. And yet, by God's grace, I made a decision on Wednesday afternoon, and for that I praise the one true and living God. I have every confidence, and I'll skip now to this next. According to Chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, God, the great Creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to to the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Amen. Here's what his testimony is here. For years, I have taught and preached about the doctrine of God's sovereignty, a sovereignty that ordains not only the ends of our lives, but also the means by which those ends are accomplished. Wednesday afternoon was a powerful theological object lesson for your pastor. And I would add for all of us, for all of us, our times are in our ha- his, his hands, and we should joyfully confess that fact. Because his disposition will always be better than ours, and we can live in confidence. We can live in, in joy. We can live in, in the not in depression, not in a feeling of impending doom, but in the, the most wonderful sort of God-confidence that he is sovereign over all of our affairs. What if we thought that there was one sphere of life where he's not sovereign? What if we thought that as long as we are running, as long as we are biking, as long as we're in a car, that God can save us from it, but not a jet going 600 miles an hour directly towards the earth, one second away from impact. But no, God is sovereign over that one as well. And there is no, no area of life that you can tell me or conjure up or encounter in which God is not sovereign. And that, my friends, is something we can joyfully confess. Secondly, and finally, I think we should confess the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Notice even this little thing that was mentioned towards the end of the chapter in verse 31 Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. Do you understand what is being said here? This is no point of agricultural curiosity. The point is that God had arranged it in his timing so that the destruction of the food supply was not complete, but rather partial, and that in his goodness, there would be food enough for the people to survive. It was only the flax and the barley, but not the wheat and the spelt, and that these people would have food. Even in the midst of this judgment that is coming upon so justly, Pharaoh and his people, he's been merciful, friends. This is the mercy of God. And the point, again, is equally with the sovereignty of God, he is sovereign, but also he is merciful. The point, again, it is God who shows mercy. And we cannot possibly encounter this chapter. We cannot possibly encounter either Exodus 9 or Romans 9 without being struck, without being reinforced in the mercy of God, because that is what God himself is highlighting to us. The last word in Romans is about mercy, and the last word here in Exodus is about mercy. The existence, the mere existence of there being a covenant people is merciful. There, can, there could be a world in which there was no covenant people. The existence of a Redeemer is mercy beyond imagination. It is easy, easy, all too easy to imagine a world in which Jesus Christ did not come into this sin cursed world to live and to die. But God is showing his mercy. Even in his timing, my friends, the timing of the day of judgment, he is showing mercy. You know, we ourselves say, well, this world is continuing on in its wickedness. When is judgment coming? The whole point is his mercy. 2 Peter 3, his times are merciful. The heavens and the earth which are now are preserved by the same word. At the moment by moment, God is upholding the, the universe by the word of his power. And what is He why is he preserving it? He could let it fall into nothingness, but he preserves it for a purpose. The heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, his son counts slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He, beloved, he is extending the day of mercy that all might come to repentance, that all might come to salvation. This is the great story of his sovereignty. And he is using his sovereign power to extend beyond even the patience of man. That's why this is addressed. These people's patience had run out. Where is God? The patience of the martyrs in heaven has run out. And they are saying, Lord, how long? Until you avenge our blood on the earth. But God's patience has not run out. Because his mercy is greater than ours. And he is extending the day of mercy so that all might come to repentance. What a wonderful and glorious thought the sovereignty of God. Let us pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, we glorify your holy name. We see truly the wickedness, the sinfulness, the intransigence, the hatred, the rebellion, the hardness of heart of Pharaoh and all like him. Lord, we see in your sovereignty, yes, you determine all things. You determine the times. You're the one who disposes mankind according to your good pleasure, according to your glory. Lord, bringing the wicked to destruction, we know certainly they will. But Lord, in your mercy, saving some, indeed many. And we're thankful, Lord, for this. We glorify you in your sovereignty. We declare with Pharaoh that we and our people, we are wicked, but you are righteous. And there is no unrighteousness with God, only justice and mercy. And Heavenly Father, how thankful that there, there is a covenant people called according to your purposes. And there is a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, that all who call upon him are saved. Nothing more to do, nothing more to add, simply to receive the gift of what was was done on Calvary. Lord, we praise your holy name and we worship you as we gladly confess your sovereignty and your mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.